Welcome back to Over Here. My name is Nick Finzer, and today we have something a little bit different than what we have offered before here on Over Here. Today we're not interviewing one of our artists as usual, but today I am sharing a talk that I did uh, at the University of North Texas for their Entrepreneurship Weekly Departmental. And this was a gathering of all the students who were and are studying entrepreneurship in addition to whatever primary instrument or music education uh, degree is primarily a master's level audience, uh, some undergrads as well, as well as some people from the community and uh, other faculty and stuff in the audience here at the University of North Texas. And uh, so today I just thought I would share that talk in its entirety. It starts off talking about kind of my backstory and kind of how I got into being entrepreneurial and why and how and how Outside in Music started, how my nonprofit started, uh, a lot of the online work that I do as an educator. And uh, without any further ado, I'll just jump right into it and I'll check back in with you uh, at the end of the talk. Uh, There's some nice Q&A at the end where we got to address a few things that the students were thinking about. And so hopefully they will also be reflective of some of the things that you are thinking about as well. So thanks for being here. Always remember we are here each and every Monday with a new episode of something on the podcast channel, often over here, sometimes our other shows behind the backing track and also Dan Gross's uh, podcast show as well. So we are almost at the end of 2018. Be on the lookout for some end of year playlists, end of year uh, recap of everything that's happened here at Outside Music and then throughout the industry that tends to happen every year at this time. So I'm looking forward uh, to going back and seeing all the great releases that came out this year. I'm super proud of our artists and all the things that we've been able to do. But without further ado, I'm going to jump right into this uh, interview slash talk that I did for the University of North Texas. I can stand over here since, of course, everyone's over here. Uh, but hello, good morning. How's everybody feeling today? Good? Yeah? Amazing. Well, I'm grateful to be here. Thanks for inviting me. I've always been to be able to share kind of what I've been up to the last uh, seven or eight years uh, doing all different kinds of things. But if you haven't, we haven't met yet. Uh, my name is Nick Finzer, and I did just move here from New York. I was in New York, I was working as a freelance trombonist, jazz trombonist, doing all kinds of things, playing with people, touring a lot, and doing that whole side of things. But always kind of in my career, I've always um, pursued other endeavors, not being satisfied with whatever was handed to me. I wanted to kind of make sure that my life and career was going in the direction that I wanted it to go in, not necessarily just letting things happen to me as whatever it were, whatever it was as I saw a lot of musicians that I respected a lot who may have not been doing what they wanted to do when they set out and they kind of ended up in a certain place and they were not uh, as fulfilled as as I kind of hoped to be, hoped to be as a young person still. So uh, I'll just kind of back up and give you a little bit of background about kind of how I came up and where all these projects uh, came from in my life. So just so you know what I'm working on now, I have Obviously, I'm teaching here, I'm a performer, composer. I have a, four CDs as a leader with my band. And then uh, I also have a nonprofit called the Institute for Creative Music, which does uh, jazz workshops and outreach and has generally been in places that don't have access to a lot of big cities near them. We've gone to Montana a bunch of times uh, to do residencies there in the public school district. 
there. And uh, we also then try to do a performance project every year that incorporates different pop artists, non-traditional jazz people. We've done a project with Prince's music, uh, York's music. This year we recorded earlier in May, St. Vincent. Uh, so just trying a bunch of different things with that. And then along with doing that, I also run a media company and record label called Outside of Music. And we've released about 65 or 70 records over the last three years. And in addition to that, I kind of insist on my artists to make sure that they're recording videos of all everything they're doing uh, to start a kind of like a content machine that can go along with their uh, releases. Because uh, as you all know already, things have changed a lot in the record business. But so let me back up and kind of share with you how all of these things kind of came to be. Uh, everything that I've developed as my you know, entrepreneurial self has kind of come out of necessity, has kind of come out of opportunities or lack thereof. So um, when I was in high school, first starting, um, I wanted to play gigs and I didn't know how, so I started a band. And my friends and I were obsessed with uh, a few fusion bands from the 70s, like the Mahavishnu Orchestra and uh, bands like that. So we started this kind of funk fusion band in high school and I started learning all the things that I didn't know you were supposed to hire somebody else to do, like you know, how do you, you know, record your music, how do you, you know, find a studio and all this stuff. So I, I convinced some guy in our local town to let us record in his basement studio, to get an EP together, start to play gigs and all this stuff, build websites. And this was, this would have been in like 2004, 2003, right before, you know, Facebook came and I couldn't wait until face, I graduated from you know, high school so I could get on Facebook and start to promote my gigs in 2005. And um, so from there I got into school, continued running bands. I went to the Eastman School of Music for my undergrad. And while I was there, again, wanting to continue having gigs to play as a trombone player, you're not the first one on the list for the cocktail hour gigs. You know, you have to uh, assert yourself in kind of a way to make things happen. So I decided uh, to keep running that band. And as part of that, kind of observing what was happening is that there wasn't enough money in just performing at clubs around to really put together a tour that could pay for the expenses of things. So at that point, that was maybe my second, my third year, I think, I was like, okay, we're gonna put together a, some kind of unique educational package to go along with our, you know, our music, because the music is the music, but what can we offer to a middle school? What can we offer to a high school? What can we offer to a college as young jazz musicians uh, that don't have all the experience of you know, the great guest artists that they're bringing in already, but what can we offer that maybe those people can't offer? So we put together a package I put together the first tour I ever put together you know, in, uh, was, I think, 2007 or 2008, and also secured a sponsor for that to kind of help and branded it with their stuff, their logos on posters, on flyers, handbills, everything, and really can, had to go through a lot to kind of figure out how that whole thing worked. But funded that first tour, uh, figured out that there was a niche for that, this kind of combination of playing and educational stuff together so that you could access funds on both sides. You didn't have to worry about, I need to make $1,000 on this gig, so I need to sell 100 tickets. And you could just focus on doing the music, connecting with audiences and fan, people uh, all over the country. So from there, a buddy of mine that was in my band that was a drummer, and his name is Chris Teal, and he and I ended up taking this initial idea and turning it into a more formalized idea, which became the Institute for Creative Music. 
so from there, that's when we started investigating how do, how do we write grants, how do we you know, do all this stuff. And it was just because now we had a product, we had our, you know, our band that had our kind of crazy fusion music, and how are we going to tell people about it, how are we going to connect with you know, audiences of young people, students everywhere, while being students. So that was kind of a unique challenge. So we figured out how to do that, got some grants, went to Montana, all that kind of stuff. And then we realized, as you know, each, I moved to New York, he moved from Rochester, where Eastman is. Uh, he was still in Rochester, now he lives in Fayetteville, Arkansas. So as we kind of spread out across the country and our friends started to spread out, as everyone was graduating from school, we realized it was gonna be really difficult to keep all of that together. So what we ended up doing was, instead of focusing on residencies and grants, we decided to take the concepts of our teaching, which are very much focused on getting off the page and improvising for students of all levels, um, using improvisation as a means to improve musicianship, regardless of whether you're a classical person, a jazz person, it doesn't matter. And so we had always done that in our workshops, but we realized that that was something that we could repackage. And so from there, in about 2010, when I moved to New York, uh, we started creating online courses for our uh, nonprofit. That's when it first kind of started. And two years ago, we started, we first launched our official uh, series of videos kind of going through six types of jazz tunes uh, for beginners and this is kind of what we're trying to go into the area before you get to a blues usually everybody starts with the blues when you play jazz it seems like the easiest thing but I think sometimes the, the blues is the exception to the rule a lot of the times rather than the rule of harmony if you're just talking about learning how to improvise over harmony without getting too much into that we started this thing this online course and it's really uh, started to ramp up and it's got me personally thinking about that and realizing how I was getting burned out of running all around New York teaching private lessons, and I started uh, a virtual studio. So I started using the same platform uh, that we did with the Institute for Creative Music to start posting videos every week uh, of different lessons about trombone playing, about jazz playing, improv improvising, uh, some other things around having a career in music, not just performing. Uh, so we started that, and that's been going on for about the last two years or so this kind of focus on online content with everyone spread out around the country and everyone having some recording equipment and recording their own selves and then we cut all the videos together to, into a sequence so that uh, they can be shared and it doesn't matter that we're all not in the same place anymore. So it's a long story. And then we get to uh, the reason why I have a record label is because uh, when I was finishing school, my master's at Juilliard in New York, I kind of had a moment where I freaked out. I didn't know what I was going to do with my life. I didn't know what I was going to do with myself. Maybe some of you have had those feelings before. And uh, I said, okay, what am I going to do? What am I going to do? Uh, I don't know. I should make a record. I don't know why that was the thing that popped into my head. But so I decided I was going to make the record. And I was like, I don't have any money. How am I going to make a record? Like, well, I have a band because I was using you know, people at school. We had been playing together for a couple of years. We had played some of my music, played some gigs. I'm like, all right, well, I got the band. How am I going to get this? So I decided to uh, do a Kickstarter campaign uh, in the early, kind of early-ish days of Kickstarter. And luckily, I was able to do that uh, Kickstarter campaign and then fund the record and put it out. After it was all done, I wanted to find a label. I had no intention of starting a label. But I either got, a, got no, or we can do it next year, or various answers such as that, and I was not satisfied with that, so I decided to, I'm like, oh, I can do this on my own. And so I started a company thinking that I would just kind of release my record, not thinking it would become anything in particular. I put, put, put it out on cdbaby.com and just kind of stuck a logo on it, came up with a name. I 
didn't have much thought into it at all. And just kind of went with it, put the record out, and I was trying to learn all the different parts of creating a, an album, putting it out into the world. This would have been in 2012 when I was doing this. And I got some recommendations from people to hire to build a team around the release. Um, I hired a publicist, spent $7,000, and he just hosed me. He kind of took, me, took advantage of me as a young person, uh, not knowing what I was doing. But I will say, it was very expensive, but a great lesson in uh, trying to get a lot of recommendations and actually talking to different people and trying to see exactly what different people are about in this industry. I'm not going to mention his name or anything like that, but I've definitely started not recommending that person to other people because of the nature of that relationship. So in all of that, I learned a lot. My second record, I ended up putting it out with a label. I ended up getting very frustrated with the lack of control that I had uh, in that process. I didn't know how much of a control freak I was until that moment. I was like, well, I guess I actually do want to do things my way. So then I decided to do that. And I noticed all my friends having the similar issues. So therefore, I started having, uh, doing this label because I figured, well, it's going to take them five hours to try to learn all the stuff that I already learned, so why should they waste that? I can do it in five minutes. I, I know the person to call, et cetera, et cetera. So I was trying to just save my friend's time, and I put out a couple records, and it's just started to kind of pick up slowly uh, from steam to the point now where I can't put out everything that's coming uh, my way because there's just not enough time or energy in my, in my life to be able to, to do that anymore. So with Outside in Music, the thing that I'm trying to focus on is to get people away from thinking about the normal process of putting out a record and starting to think about their music as literally just content like any other piece of content that you would put out in any other business. And in, in any other business, you might be investing in product videos or advertising, uh, you know, any, any, any number of type of things. And I try to think, tell my artists, it's like, you have to be putting music out constantly. And if you're not putting out music constantly, you're going to get forgotten because you usually end up spending a lot of money on a project and then you have to save up for two years before you can put out another project. And even if you get onto a label, they're only going to give you a little bit of money towards your project and you're going to spend probably more than what the label's going to give you, if, if they give you any money, up front, I mean, as, a, as a, an advance. And so you still have to get in this whole conundrum of not having enough money to release stuff right away. So I've tried to create a few little models for our artists to be able to do things faster. So now what we do is uh, instead of people taking two, three, four days in the studio, I tell them to get really prepared and we do two sessions in a day and then we can share the costs of the engineer, the studio, the videographer, the mixing, the mastering, the editing, everything where we get multiple bands in the, in the studio in the day. They're super prepared and they have a producer like myself who won't let them waste time, which they don't really like. So I'm like, come on guys, let's go, let's go, let's go. But as being a sideman on so many sessions, you start to realize all the things people do that waste time in the session um, that you don't really need to do. Like for example, you record a song and then you listen back to like three takes of that song to decide if you're going to do another one. And in the time you listen to those three takes, you could have just done another one. And then you could decide later what you were actually going to do. So I tried to take all types of little inefficiencies like that and just kind of tell people how I saw it uh, as, as me, as kind of however I thought about those things. Whew. OK, so 
what did I miss here? I think I got just about everything. But um, so what we're doing now at Outside In Music is producing that, those albums that go along with videos. We get people going. Uh, we have podcasts that come out every week that uh, are either interviews with artists before the records come out. We do uh, Spotify playlists to try to get their music out into the world. We do um, just kind of general media for the industry. That's kind of something we're trying to get into, like reviewing other people's CDs or um, creating Spotify playlists of the best of new releases for a month that doesn't include ours, like looking at the rest of the industry. And trying to just kind of build a platform and community for the artists to be able to interact and work together and to just kind of create something where there's a void. And I feel like a lot of people are frustrated. They don't know what to do. Frustrated that Spotify doesn't pay them enough, and all these kind of things. And I, of course, I agree. I wish Spotify paid us more, but I'd rather that the music is heard than for it to be, you know, on, on Bandcamp and you have to buy it to hear it, and then you sell maybe 15 copies, but then nobody's heard the music because it's never been on Spotify or YouTube or anything like that. I'm sure you all know that most people just go to YouTube to find things. So if you're not there, you kind of don't exist. So I try to tell my artists that, and with varying levels of success, some people are kind of in my camp thinking that that's just the right way to go, and some people are not. And that's fine, and we work with people you know, of all different sides trying to do that. So some things uh, that I'm trying to do with the company now is uh, we're building out the team. We have, I have two assistants that are working, and we've had interns for the past couple of years from Florida State University where I was teaching before. So we are looking for interns to start next semester. If anybody's looking for an internship, I know it, it was up on the on the website. But we're kind of trying to do things, you know, based on based around content creation, learning about how to do those types of things, and uh, see how a record label kind of works behind the scenes. Um, what kind of things we're talking about? How do we get things on Spotify playlists? How do we make things happen when it's the traditional ways of making things happen aren't uh, aren't happening anymore? So. If you want to talk to me about that, I'd be happy to. Um, you can find my office is 107, or you can just email me, Nicholas Finzer at UNT, or just Google me and you'll find me. It's not that difficult. Um, so I would love to be able to dive in more deeply to the things that you guys are thinking about, kind of now that you've heard kind of this gamut of things that, that I have been doing. Is there any of those things that are more or less interesting that we could do more of a dive into that's applicable to any of you, your circumstances? Yes. I'm very organized with the content schedule for everything, uh, for, for both myself as a person and the, and, uh, the label and the nonprofit. Um, I kind of thrive in an environment where things are not the same all the time. I don't really like having to do the same thing every week. It kind of grinds on my nerves. So it, like having the different stuff all the time is kind of something that I thrive in. But uh, so no, I don't do everything kind of on schedule. I'm more of a, like dive really deep for a couple of days on this and then. See the next thing and could dive really deep on that. And see the next thing, dive really deep on that. Uh, would I say that's the most balanced approach? No. I, I wish I could be more balanced, but I'm kind of 
all in or all out. So I can't really, it's hard for me to do things like half of. So it's like I want to I wanna like be in there and make it as best as I possibly can, or I'm kind of not that interested in it. So just, you know, just in the sake of transparency, over the last couple of years, the nonprofit has kind of taken a backseat to some of the other things. Uh, we got, you know, the guy Chris, who I started doing this with, he had two kids, and he's like, we're doing family stuff. And the third guy that was really involved, he he got a military band gig, so he's been in D.C. And our other friend that was really involved moved to Argentina because he got married and had kids and went there. So it's become more of a struggle to keep everything together, but. You know, we've, we've done what we can. So I feel like you know, just trying to move forward a little bit every year is generally important. And recently, just kind of realizing how long things take and trying to just be okay with things taking a lot longer than I thought. You know, I thought I had, I had kind of some arbitrary goals. When I moved to New York, I was like, all right, by the time I'm 30, I'm going to have this, 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 and this. I don't know if I really have any of those things. I turned 30 this year, and I have a whole bunch of different things that maybe I didn't think that I would have when I started. So uh, just trying to have that self-awareness of how you function best and how you can contribute best to the situations you're, that you're in, and being aware to be patient and kind of see things in 5, 10, 15, 20 years rather than being like, I need to play this gig right now because I need that $500. And you're like, well, maybe it's more of a good use of my time to invest in long-term kind of vision of growing a project, a team, a company, a whatever, a band, whatever it is, an ensemble that you're involved in. You know, I've, seen a lot, I've seen a lot of my friends that I went to school with have pretty good success with turning their ensembles into nonprofits and being able to access a lot of different funding sources that way. It's a very, I know it's a very competitive space, but I mean, I've seen a lot of people actually have a lot of success in trying to create that model that way. Seems like the kind of the classical-ish new music side of the music industry, the grant industry at least, has that more together, and the funds are more available, and it's more clear how to get them. Sometimes I feel like in the jazz area, the, it's kind of more unclear. There's not that many uh, things you can pursue as on that side of things. But I think there's becoming more and more as we talk to. If you guys aren't familiar with Chamber Music America, they have a lot of especially with the jazz people. And I know I talked to them over the summer and they said they have a bunch of new pro new um, grants coming up. So if you are interested in those things, I would keep an eye on Chamber Music America to see what, what exactly they're going to be launching. I think in 2019, I'm sure you, you probably know all about those. But... Yes. Great question. That's a great question. So my journey with that, with this, has started in when I was finishing up in school. At the same time I was doing the record, I decided I should take everything that I had learned and kind of figure out like what I would do in a master class. So I put out all the like handouts that I put together for like summer jazz camps and what I was doing with lessons with students taking all that stuff and putting it all together. And by the time I put it all together, I realized that I had a book. And so what, and I, what I did at first was just kind of create this book. So in 2013, I 
published a book uh, just, it's called Get Ahead, a Practical Guide for the Developing Jazz Promoter. Very uh, practical title. But, uh, <laughs> so I put that out, and that's kind of, it, nothing really happened with it, it was just kind of there. But it led to some things of kind of being like, oh, here's a book, and when I first got my first college teaching job, it was like a big part of defining my authority having this book, and it really was just a collection of everything that I had already been doing. So when we started talking about the online learning space with the nonprofit, uh, I was like, the first thing that I should do was I took that book and I created a course, an online course, that went along with, um, I actually probably show you, but, uh, an online course that went along with the book, literally just kind of uh, page for page, exercise to exercise, and put that all together. And then as I was getting a lot more requests for Skype, lessons online, um, I realized I couldn't fit them in because I was touring a lot between 2015 and 2017. And I just couldn't do them all. And I wanted to be able to interact with those people, those students. So that's when I came up with the idea. I'm like, well, if I put a lesson every week in this studio and then give them access to me where they can message me a video of them playing or whatever, and I can just like quick like make a video back and send it back and forth, it's become you know a great way for people just the other day, a guy from Hong Kong joined, a guy from Brazil joined. So it's like a really cool thing to be able to like connect with people. Like there's no way that they could come and get a lesson here at UNC, but we can connect online. So in order to get the following, so I made the book and then I started in 2015 uh, taking my YouTube channel more seriously. And what that means, YouTube parlance is uploading more than like sporadic videos. You have to be, have a regular posting schedule and you have to post content uh, at least once a week. And really, if you want to get noticed on YouTube, three, four, five, six, seven times a week you should be posting, uh, which seems daunting. But uh, so there's a, a some, I you know, read a lot of kind of you know, business entrepreneurial style books. And there's a guy that has a podcast in that space named Tim Ferriss, and he always talks about what would this look like if it was easy? Question. So I try to keep that in mind when I'm thinking about getting overwhelmed. Like, how am I going to put three or four videos on YouTube every week? Like, oh my god! And then I realized, okay, if I just start filming the things that I'm doing, then I can start to have like stuff to post. Like, maybe I won't post it. Maybe I will. I don't know. Maybe it's just a part of it. But so I started trying to just make videos of different things. If I was trying to make videos of different lessons, different maybe different parts of what was inside of the course and release them there. And also at the same time as that, trying to build up you know, performance stuff, to build credibility as a performer, at the same time as, as the ed education stuff. Um, so it's just been slow, literally slow. And when I quit with my teaching job at Florida State in 2016, I was back in New York full time. I was like, all right, this is what I'm gonna do. I'm gonna do YouTube do at least one, if not two, videos every week. And the longer I've done it, the longer, the more I realize that the how-to content, the educational content, is the stuff that people watch more on YouTube. Like, I have the most watched YouTube video on my channel. There's this, this random uh, major scale workout that I came up with uh, on, on a whim one day. It was in my little packet, it was in my book, and I was like, oh, let me just make a video of this and we'll see what happens. And all of a sudden, so it's been outperforming every other video. Uh, it's like, I think 35,000 as opposed to like 2,000 or something like the rest of them. 
But what you realize is that when you're in such a specific and niche thing, that two or 3,000 views is actually a pretty good percentage of the amount of people that like, want to find out about jazz trombone on YouTube. Like, there's a few guys, there's, I can think of two guys that have like, a big presence in the trombone community on, on YouTube, and they do things that are not anything that I want to do. One guy does covers of pop tunes with like, you know, loops and stuff, and the other guy makes like goofy, goofy trombone videos. I don't really want to have to do either of those things. I'm just going to like put out the stuff that I talk about and I care about. Uh, so anyway, that's led to um, this virtual studio I'm going to show you. So we use a platform called teachable.com. There's other ones. Um, but basically, you can see it's kind of through the Institute for Creative Music, and uh, there's all. Yes, I can't really show you the inside unless I log in. I don't know if I will remember to log in, but I'll go to this page, and you can see all the things. So we do these uh, creative jazz fundamentals, and you can see like this was the first thing that I created. This get ahead course, and then we have our you know creative jazz fundamentals series, which is the um, the tunes like pre-blues kind of tunes, kind of talking about improvisation for any instrument. And, you know, we there's like different previews. And so you can see like everyone's in a different place and they all kind of just recorded different stuff. And so there's different like play-alongs and different um, PDFs you can stick in here. Uh, the only problem with this teachable.com is that it's a little bit expensive to get started with. So um, trying to find like an organization or a group of people you can go in on with subscription if you're going to get super serious about it. But the other thing you could totally do is just post everything on YouTube for free. And then go from there. Once there's demand, you can start putting extra stuff behind some kind of subscription wall. But um, teachable.com is the one that we've been using. And it's pretty good. It's not as customizable as we like, but we started looking into how much it would cost to build out our own uh, platform. And it was really expensive. <laughs> to stick with what we have. So that's, so that's I have a question. So yeah. how do you make decisions in terms of which content you just give out for free on your YouTube channel, which content you put as part of the course that is subscription-based or purchase-based? Sure. Um, so what I like to think of that I'm selling in terms of my personal virtual studio is access to me and my time. So the content might not be that different. It's more, it's more concentrated inside of the course. So I try in, in certain things, like in that Get Ahead course that's based on the book, I haven't posted most of that content is not on YouTube because I don't want people to feel like it's just out there for free when they paid for it. But, uh, but everything else I think you should just give away for free because the more stuff you give away, the more stuff you post online, the more people are gonna find out about you and the more people are going to um, want you to come and do things, want you to be a guest artist, do all these different things. And I, I think you can do whatever you want in terms of how protective you want to be, but I found the more open I am with sharing whatever information I have, the more stuff comes back. So I put all of my music on Spotify. I put everything up on YouTube in terms of teaching. I put 
you know, there's, there's no secrets, but the only thing that people have to pay for is access to me and my time. That's kind of how I view it, because there's only so much time. So, especially if you're teaching twice, you know, it really takes up a lot of time. So if I'm going to take on extra stuff, it has to be, has to be paid. But if I'm going to put it out in the world and I want you know, people to check it out, then, then yeah, I just put everything. So when people buy courses, they have some content that you put in there, but mostly what they get is coaching from you where they get to send you their materials and you get to send the feedback. It's not yeah. live classes necessarily. Not live classes. Yeah, basically, in the virtual in this virtual studio thing that I've been doing. But I've even toyed with the idea of getting rid of the studio altogether and just posting all the videos online on YouTube because I just want to get more stuff out there because it really is it really comes back a lot more. The more stuff you put out, the more stuff you can get back. With the Creative Jazz Fundamentals, that stuff is all behind the subscription wall. We've put out a few videos talking about same process with using some like popular uh, like jazz tunes to try to get people familiar with the process. Uh, with that whole thing, we just just because we've been trying, it's taken a lot of money to develop those things, so we've kind of kept those all behind a paywall. Uh, but in our best avenues for getting people subscribed to those are connecting with educators that don't have a lot of jazz experience but want their students to learn how to improvise. And so when we've done that. That's allowed them to kind of require the kids to get a subscription to this uh, Jazz Fundamentals, which we do for a, a big discount so that they can all get in there for 15 bucks or 20 bucks or something and uh, have access to all those, all those lessons. So uh, the more, I think the, the more that you put out, the better in that there's not that much to save to put behind the wall. Maybe you put more production value into it or something so people feel like they're getting more value out of it. But the content of the stuff, the concepts are, are kind of all the same. I think whether you were teaching it or I were teaching it, you would probably teach, talk about a lot of the same things, but it's just how you, how you present it or how you describe something and everybody needs. Sometimes people just need the accountability of like, all right, if I spend this $200 on this course, I'm going to go through it, I'm going to practice. Some people need that that thing. And some people are self-motivated enough to just take the free stuff on YouTube and go for it. But some people need that, like, uh, I spent, well, I spent 200 bucks, so I better do this. And you just have to just kind of go with all the different, uh, connect, try to connect with as many different people in the space as possible. Um, kind of my, my phrase that I kind of use a lot with, so not with, outside of music, and it's become kind of like a YouTube show for me where I kind of talk about different music business related things every week for just a couple of minutes. It's just called Create, Connect, Repeat. And that's what I try to instill in the artists and anyone who talks to me or people that I talk to that those steps of just like making something, putting it out, and just doing it on a schedule. And you're making yourself do it for like two years or three years as opposed to like, I'm gonna put out these three YouTube videos and then I'm gonna just see if it works. It's like that's not gonna it's not gonna work. You know, especially or Instagram or Facebook or any social platform or your website. Like none of it is gonna work unless you're creating stuff on a consistent basis and putting it out. That's why I was describing that process of trying to get artists in the studio faster to reduce costs and get more music out. Um, I've been talking to industry people and they say and a lot of them say that 
people have been having great success in the non-creative you know, music, if you want, pop world, rock world. We're just releasing singles, we're doing a single every month for 10 months of the year. And just promote one single at a time and get the most spins you can, or, uh, streams, streams that yeah. you can in each, uh, on each one. And they said that they've been, had way more success doing that. And that the whole concept of like albums is not really that popular at the moment. So it's like, even if you create your album that is a concept album, there's no reason why you can't release the singles so people can hear it. And I just, uh, I think there's a balance between holding up your artistic ideas, sometimes too high to the point where you can't get noticed. And I find a lot of people, there's one artist that I have, he's a Dutch drummer, and he lives in New York, and he hates Spotify so much. <laughs> He won't put his music on there. But literally, he has people, I have people emailing me from the Netherlands saying, why is this music not on Spotify? They're mad at me. Like, my fault that like his music is on there. Like, well, you know, this guy, he doesn't want his music on there. He wants people to come. Like, we went to his show, it was amazing. I would share this with all my friends, blah, 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 blah. And it's like, dude, put your music on Spotify. You'll get plays. He's like, no, but then people won't buy the records. And I'm like, nobody's gonna buy the record anyway. Yeah. <laughs> So, I mean, people buy CDs or records as collectibles, and if that person is not a collector of those things, they're not going to buy it. Like, why? Why are you going to try to sell them something they don't want? They want to stream it, so give them what they want. Plus, how much do you make selling the record? Yeah, I mean, you know, that's how I feel. I'm like, I'm never going to make my money back on records or on albums, so I'm just I, I view them as an, an advertising cost to me as a business of my music. Okay, it costs this much, blah, blah, blah. Uh, anything that I make, I've always rolled it over into the next project. I've never pulled a dime out of, out of the records that I've made. There was the initial Kickstarter money, and then all of that went in, all the sales went to the next one, all the sales went to the next one, which were, I don't even know. Most of the time, I would take the cash and pay my band for, you know, for gigs, because there was nobody at the gig. This is what I wanted, but I was going to treat my band well, as well as I could, so I would pay them with the merch money. Yeah, sorry. Well, so you mentioned a lot of the things you did, you did as a student. Yeah. You created a lot of experiences while being a student. And that's something that here in the program we emphasize a lot in terms of even though it may seem like a very overwhelming time and students are really busy and they think, you know, this all sounds great, I'll think about it when I graduate. What could you say about pursuing all of these ventures while handling the academic load that happens and having to work on the side and make money because you have to pay for your tuition. Could you talk a little bit about your experience, how you went about doing precisely that? Yeah, so I did start all of these things while I was in school. Um, and like I said, they were kind of necessities out of like a sense of wanting to know what to do when I got done and not knowing what I was going to do. And so, like I was saying, things take a long time. You know, if I hadn't started in school, I would still be in the beginning part of it, rather than like in a middle part where it's starting, the vision of all these things are starting to crystallize, and I can see where it needs to go now. You know, with the label six years after I started it, with the nonprofit uh, almost eight years since we started it, and just starting to see like, okay, this is where we're gonna go. And like pivoting from like, okay, we're gonna do residencies to like, everyone's too busy, can't do that anymore, what else are we gonna do? And kind of pivoting to something else. 
books down in the online learning space. Um, what I can say about it is that you actually have more time now than you think you do. You just don't realize, you won't realize, and no matter if I tell you this or not, you won't realize it until afterwards when you look back, but you have more time now than you will in the future, even though it doesn't feel that way. Um, there's a lot of time you spend doing a lot of different social things. You know, my, my fiance will tell you that I've been really terrible about social engagement because I wanted to stay home and work. And that's just my personality. I, get, I know now I get it from my father. That's how he is. And like, so when I was in school, if I was out on a Friday night, it was because I was playing a gig. Or Saturday was because I was paying, playing a gig. It wasn't, I wasn't going to parties and things of that nature. I just wanted to work. If I wasn't working, I was feeling very anxious because I was like, I don't work on this, I'm not gonna be successful, I'm not gonna be able to do blah, blah, blah. So this is the downfall of me, and I don't, not suggesting you should not have a balanced life at all, you should do what you need to do. But for me, that's where I got my calmness, was from checking off the last thing on my to-do list, and then going to the social things, and doing all the fun things. But uh, there's, you definitely have more time now than you think. And uh, trying to take advantage of, something that's been very helpful for me is trying to figure out what environments, what tasks can get done most easily. So like my favorite, favorite place to be a lot of the time is on an airplane because nobody can bother me and I can sit down and I can get things done that need to get done. And I, I can when we land, I've done all the stuff like that I couldn't do because my phone was ringing, texting, students knocking, all et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. You know, so you can get all that stuff done. So you're trying to find out how you work best. But don't wait to start, because even if you don't end up you know, finding this thing that you start this year as your passion for life, you learn a lot of stuff along the way. And like I was saying, that first guy that took $7,000 of my money and gave me no reviews and almost no radio play. And, uh, and I was like, hmm, cool. There goes that money. But like, you know, now I know don't hire this guy. I met these people, talked to them specifically. Because when you think about it all together, like it really makes sense why, how he couldn't do everything that he said he was going to do. There was just no way, based on uh, on time of the day, he could do what he told him he was going to do. And I should have known that, but I didn't know. You don't know what you don't know. So, uh, you got to start something, you know, because uh, as a person who's been very fortunate, and I'm very aware that I've been very fortunate to go to great schools and get some opportunities that not everybody gets. Even for someone like myself that's had those opportunities, there's even less people that get picked to go to the even tippy-tippy top of all the opportunities that we hold in our mind as the top opportunities. Um, for example, I went to Juilliard, the class size is 30 people or so. Of the two classes, you know, the one or two guys have kind of been plucked up and thrown into the spotlight. One that I went to school was John Batiste, who's pianist, who's on the late, the, runs the band on the Late Show, the Colbert Show. And then another friend of mine, Chris Bowers, who's a film composer now and just started putting out some pretty big films in LA. So there's basically like two people that have been quote unquote like picked. And the rest of us, the other 28, are just like in the scene, we're grinding making stuff happen and playing great music, but it's like it's just not in the public eye yet. And it just takes a long time. And so just to realize that like it's pretty unlikely that things are just gonna fall in your lap. 
it's like if you haven't been on this path, this kind of pyramid path of like heading towards being that one person that gets those opportunities, like it's pretty unlikely that if you're hanging out in the middle of Arkansas, you're suddenly going to get picked and get thrown on to some TV show. Pretty unlikely. It, it has happened, and there's been YouTube sensations, but all the rest of those people that you see as being really successful, there's a long road there. Because the sooner we get onto the road, the sooner you can get you know, to the point where you think you want to get to. So that goes just hand in hand with just having that patience. And that's something that I've never had, like, as you can tell. Like, like, all right, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do this. Like, no, I'm not willing to wait six months for you to put out my album. I want it now. I'm a bratty little kid. It kind of turned into a lot of different things for me. Yeah, that was a long answer to your question. Great, we are right on time. Oh, we're on time. Thank okay. you very much. there you have it a few thoughts a few things that i experienced as a young person trying to come up uh, with a way to enhance my career through many avenues not just performance but also the business side and everything else that we do uh, as musicians in 2018 going into 2019 and beyond i don't think it's going to get any different for any future generations it's going to take a lot of persistence and a lot of um go get itness to uh, make it happen. So thanks for being here. We're so glad to have you. Uh, check out the Outside and Music YouTube page to see a lot of new videos of a lot of our artists. I'm really excited about what's getting put out there. So check that out. Subscribe. Subscribe to the podcast. Leave us a rating if you feel so inclined. And we'll see you back here next week.